Hello again. We're going to continue uh, looking at these important comparisons between the Bible and the Quran. And we're going to continue this idea of what biblical intimacy and what Quranic intimacy means, um, healthy uh, biblical platonic relationships between man and woman versus the very overly sexualized um, type of relationships that the Quran talks about. And of course, all of Islamic theology talks about as well. Now, I, I have a, an example of a Muslim missionary once, as I was debating with him in London, um, he kept saying, to me, why are you always talking about sex when we were talking about the Quran? And what had happened was I happened to be opening up the biography of Muhammad and I was reading about how Muhammad had got his wives, what, how the, the process that Muhammad went through to get his wives, um, some of which he killed the husbands and then took the wives, the widows for himself. I was uh, reading stories of uh, how Muhammad and his men were um, uh, taking the women and they're taking them for themselves. And of course, it's all, all the stories are all to do with um, Muhammad and his men's sexuality. And it's very gritty and it's very unpleasant reading. In fact, there was a time when I was doing my thesis on just ex looking at um, the Quranic and also the traditions of Islam and their view on women and how Muhammad treated women. I was especially interested in what Muhammad and his men did with women. And I remember handing my thesis to my supervisor and he's a fine Christian man. He was reading through the thesis and finally he just kind of put the thesis down and he could barely read it anymore. And um, I apologized to him. I, I said, I'm sorry that you have to read this. He says, but but this is but this is part of this is part of the part of the Islamic theology. This is part of their doctrine. He had to read it because I was doing exposing what's their doctrine or, or talked about. So it's very, very focused on one area of, of humanity, of the human being. It's an unhealthy preoccupation with the sexuality of human beings. And it um, it also has huge impact in the lives, everyday lives of a Muslim, as well as how they interact um, with people outside of Islam and certainly how they interact um, between the genders. Um, so I just want to just continue on this theme and I apologize that it's a little bit gritty, but um, you can blame the Quran for that. Blame Muhammad's life, blame Muhammad's companions uh, for, for the things that we're unpacking uh, because this is how the, the context in which a woman really is seen when it comes to the overall view of Islamic theology. So we saw in the previous uh, uh, um, class where we talked about uh, the, the holiness, if you like, between the way a man and woman interacts in Christianity and the corrupted way in which a, a Muslim man and a, or a man and woman interact according to Quranic themes. There's a very different view from what we have in the Bible. I'm going to read you a, a, uh, a, a saying from Sahih Bukhari, Volume 1. And it's a, it's a saying of Muhammad, and it's dealing with the whole idea of impurity, of a woman, and we did touch upon that already, but let me just read to you this hadith, which I haven't read yet, narrated by Aisha, interestingly, and of course that's important to highlight because uh, many Muslims say Aisha was one of the people who who, said, uh, who told many of Muhammad's narrations, and she is seen then, uh, she is revered because of it, but you need to point out uh, verses like this, or sayings like this, that maybe don't actually ennoble women when you really look into, look into what it's saying. So I Aisha says this, that apparently what the prophet said, she said, we set out with the prophet for the Hajj, um, so the pilgrimage, and of course Muslims believe that's to Mecca, and then she says, I got my menses, or menstruation. When the prophet came to me, I was weeping. 
He asked, maybe that is because you got your menses, because she couldn't go on the Hajj because she got her menses. I replied, yes. And then he said, this is the thing which Allah has ordained for all the daughters of Adam. So that what all the pilgrims do, so do what all the pilgrims do, except that you do not perform the tawaf around the, the Kaaba until you are clean. So this lassie, this is 700 years or so after the Lord Jesus Christ came, after he um, the curtain was torn in two when he died on that cross um, to allow us to enter into the holy of holies. This is another man comes along 700 years later and he puts woman back under the law before that curtain was torn, before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he put us back under the rituals and the law and the alienation that we had from God before Jesus came. Do you see how the whole of the Quran, even in how a woman is to uh, perform her religious duties or sometimes abstain from her religious duties, how the whole of this book and the message of Muhammad has put us back before the cross of Christ. So it's gone back in time and it's put us back under bondage, back under the law. A very important concept to bring out um, with Muslims. And of course, as we've learned earlier in Sahih Bukhari, again in, in, in volume one, it talk, Muhammad says the reason for this is because she's deficient in her religion. It seems like our own biological functions make a woman deficient and be able to practice her religion um, as the Quran, or, or at least Islam, not the Quran, but Islam, so demands of human beings. We um, look and see when you look at the laws that are imposed it's more so on women than on men. The fact that if a man just shakes your hand, Surah 5, 6, 6, if a man just touches a woman, it makes her unclean. Again, just bringing women down to a level that the death uh, um, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has 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 taken away from us and, and put us back into the place that we should be, that he originally wanted us to be alongside uh, our, our brethren, alongside our men um, as equals with, with the men that are in our lives. But Islam has reversed all that and undermined everything that um, God has come to do. There's a saying that comes to mind. Uh, this is a, a saying that was done by a former, well, he is still a Hafiz. A Hafiz is someone who knows the Quran off by heart. In fact, this particular Hafiz lives in the UK and he used to be a Sharia law teacher before he became a Christian. He knows the, the Quran in three different languages. He was very revered in the Muslim world uh, when he was a Muslim. He came to Christ and as he began to study about Christ and he realized uh, the, the errors of his old religion, Islam, and he was teaching a Quran class to a group of us back in London. And it's, it's quite amazing to take a Quran class um, from him because everything is said in Arabic and then he translates it for you. But suddenly in the middle of class, he says this. He says, make mo- no mistake. Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ. Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ. There's another uh, missionary from West Africa when he was talking about Islam. He says this. He says, on every key point of the gospel, Islam teaches the opposite. On every key point of the gospel, Islam teaches the opposite. So Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ. That goes right down into how a woman and a man is viewed, how a woman and a man live their life, um, how they practice their faith. So it's at every point of the gospel, Islam teaches the opposite. If there's nothing else you learn from this series, remember those two quotes, because unless you understand those two quotes, you'll have difficulty to know how 
to compare and how to um, introduce your faith to a Muslim and compare your faith um, with, with the Islamic theology. So remember those key thoughts as you, as you meet with a Muslim and share your faith and, and also challenge Islam um, as you engage with them in order to bring them um, into Christ, into relationship with Christ. So we see that there's impurity issues uh, for men and women in Islam. Women are more impure than men. We see there's an inferiority between men and women in Islam. Um, So, for example, the verses that we looked upon already, uh, verses that talk about your woman is your tilth for you, so go into her when and how you wish, uh, which is a very troubling verse that even progressive Muslims have trouble with that say no, we must say no to this verse. And so, um, and of course, there's a lot of theology around this verse. I'm amazed at times when I read Islamic theologians, when I read uh, the exegetes, the tasir uh, on these important issues to do with man and woman, how much time they spend on, on a woman and her role and her purity or impurity and how to make her pure. And there is um, some to the men as well, but much more so for the women. And it's amazing the preoccupation this religion has on these external laws and the external purity laws and cleansing laws, and much more so for the woman. Then we know there's a problem with sexual control in Islam. Again, uh, referring back to what that Muslim missionary said, why are you always talking about sex when you're talking about Islam? And you know what I said to him? I said, "Uh, because of this book. That's why I have to talk about sex when I talk about Islam. I don't want to. The Bible doesn't have this preoccupation. It puts those issues in its right context. And it talks about all sorts of other issues when it comes to men and women. In fact, and many people don't know this, when this book talks about modesty, for, especially for the woman, when it talks about modesty, and in the Old Testament it's men and women, but when it talks about modesty in the New Testament for the woman, it is in the context of her being a holy woman of God. It's not even in the context of how she's relating to a man or what a man might see. It is in the context of her being a holy woman of God. But when pu- um, purity or when modesty issues are addressed in this book, the Quran, it is always in context with how a man would see her or of, of um, trying to not seduce the men and so on. So everything is put into this over context in the Quran, but in the Bible, whilst um, those intimate part of life is addressed, um, it's put in the right context and it's not the main emphasis. It's just one of the many things that the Bible addresses. So with the Quran, we know there's a real big problem According to its own theology, Surah 2, 223, uh, the verses I just quoted, and there's even hadith, and I'm not going to say what the hadith talk about because it's just very disturbing. And there's big discussions between Muhammad's men um, about what these verses mean. And they, they all these details, that um, inappropriate details of what, what it means and, and how you can be with your wife. And it's always how a man can be with his wife, never about whether a wife, how she is with her husband. It's always the woman for the man and the man on to Towards his wife. It's never uh, an equal uh, relationship in any category of marriage or any category of even platonic um, uh, friendship between man and woman. Very, very different um, for between Muslims and Christians. 
There's a troubling uh, verse, uh, or not verse, there's a troubling saying of Muhammad from Sahih Bukhari, volume 7. And it says this, If a man invites his wife to sleep with him and she refuses to come to him, then the angels send their curses on her till the morning. The angels send their verses to her till the morning. Again, what what kind of uh, what is this saying about woman and man and the and the the wonderful uh, 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 equal relationship they should have? Is this idea that the angels send their curses to her in the morning? It's forcing her to have to submit to the husband in a certain way, forcing her to um, uh, to 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 respond to him, uh, all dealing with his desires and and not hers, and and, and it's all pro male. Then we go on to the topic of biblical faithfulness versus Quranic unfaithfulness. And again, I say that very clearly. This Bible is all about faithfulness. This Bible is all about unfaithfulness. When it comes to marriage, this book is all about how man and woman are faithful to each other. This book actually shows how a man can be really unfaithful to his wife. And so it's, it's God allowing the husband to be unfaithful. So we know in Surah 2, verse 230, and we did briefly touch upon this at another time, where uh, if, a, if, a man, if a woman and man divorce, then she cannot uh, re, uh, reunite with the husband unless, um, unless uh, she sleeps with another man. Let me read it to you, Surah 2, 230. And if he has divorced her, then she is not lawful to him thereafter. And again, do you see the context that marriage is in in this verse? It's not in the context of a relationship. It's not in the context of just emotional intimacy or uh, companionship or being a mother and a father together or being parents together. It's only in the relationship of her sexual, sexual relationship with him. That's all it's seen. There's no other, seems to be no other area of which this husband and wife is seen. So if he has divorced her, then she is not lawful to him thereafter until she has married another husband. Then if that other husband divorces her, it is no sin on them both that they reunite. Again, what does that say about Allah's character? That he would ordain such a law in his, his book that he says is for today, not for um, hundreds of, and thousands of years ago, but for today. So we have to also ask the question, how on earth does that put value in a marriage? How does that make her valuable? How is that protecting a woman? Now, I have had Muslim missionaries say to me before that the reason why this is in the Quran is to actually hinder uh, people from even trying to divorce easily. I have heard that as a way to get out of this difficult story. But again, that's not really what's implied in the text itself. That would be an, a modern uh, uh, apologetic, a Muslim apologetic. Then we have in Surah 2, um, verses 20, 226 to 230, Surah 65, verses 1 to 5, that deal with divorce. And it was really intriguing. When I first opened up this Quran and started studying uh, gender, men and women in Islam, I was really uh, quite struck by the fact that when it came to talking about uh, relationships, man and woman, marital relationships, it introduced the whole concept of divorce first. It was like divorce was the most important thing. And divorce was always given to the man. It was telling the man how he um, could divorce her. And uh, there was no really uh, verses addressed to the woman. However, that's in Surah 2. Now, if you jump to Surah 65, there is verses addressed to woman when it comes to divorce. But how, when, when you look at um, those verses, it threatens the women that God will replace them with other wives if they don't start to obey, obey Muhammad. 
So these things that should be detestable to Allah seem to be allowed in the Quran and seem to be excused in the Quran. And there's these detailed uh, uh, stories and verses of how um, how they are to divorce their wives. Why why is there such detail about how to divorce their wives? Where they say talak 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 on three separate occasions, and then they are divorced. Then we know there's also the area of unfaithfulness when it comes to the concept of muta and misya marriage. We already talked about that in a previous uh, in a previous class, and we have muta marriage where a man, when he's away from the wife, he can go take on another one. And today, the women are connected to mosques. You can go to the mosque, you can marry them for a few hours, and then you divorce correctly in the Quranic way. Sahih Bukhari, Volume Seven, Verse Sixty-Two says this: We used to participate in the holy battles led by Allah's apostle, and we had no wives with us. So we should. So we got up. So they were concerned, and they thought, should we castrate ourselves? And we talked about this in a previous in a previous talk. But then, of course, and the, um, Muhammad then receives this revelation. Remember the convenient revelations, and they saw they had seen these women as captives. They wanted to take the women for themselves, and so Surah five verse eighty-seven um, is given. And apparently, this is the context of revelation. The asbab al nuzul. Um, uh, Uh, is, 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 is why this verse is given. O oh, you who believe, make not lawful the good things which Allah has made lawful. Hang on a minute. Okay, this is written a few years later, this particular Asbab al-Nuzul, this context of revelation. But it says here, make not lawful the good things which Allah has made lawful for you. And the context that's given for it, one of the contexts is given for it, is when they went into war and they'd taken the women, they killed the husbands, and they wanted the woman for themselves. In modern day terms, that is rape. So here Allah says, make not unlawful the good things which Allah has made lawful for you. What kind of God is this? If this truly is the context of revelation for this verse, what kind of God is that that allows the men not only to abuse women but to murder the husbands, but to take these women and abuse them in such an evil way, as well as be un- be unfaithful to the wives they have at home? What kind of God is this? Help your Muslim friends to understand that. As a Christian, not only do I find this appalling to the female. It insults the whole male gender. It insults my Christian brothers and sisters who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been transformed, who are faithful to their wives, and have self-control. That is one of the fruits of the Spirit, where we have self-control. It's interesting. I was talking with a young Muslim um, man. He's like a brother to me. It's a particular home that I'm in um, back in London. There's a lot of young men in this home. And they see me as the older sister, and because they can't always confide in other people in their culture because they will be judged for it, they tend to sometimes confide in me um, some of uh, quite gritty issues that they struggle with. They normally wouldn't with a woman. Now I'm not encouraging you, especially if you don't understand Islam, especially if you're in your twenties. You need to be careful with. With this, um, but I'm in my 40s now, and so it's not a big deal for for they sort of see me as the the big older sister. And so these young men were sharing with me a few struggles they have, and not when anyone else is in the room, but on their own. And the, the women are always with me, and we're, we're we're I'm seen as the sister and the daughter. And suddenly, this young man um, just blurted out, he says, "I just can't control myself. I just can't control myself." 
Well, this young man has struggled. He's slept with prostitutes before, as unfortunately many young Muslim men do when they come out of the more strict uh, Islamic cultures. Now, one thing you have to understand about Muslim extended culture is that uh, a young man may be fairly moral in a Muslim setting. So uh, maybe in some of the more traditional Muslim cultures, they'll be fairly moral because there's many restrictions in their culture. The extended family culture helps them to live a little bit more of a pure life. But it's external purity. It's not internal purity. So the moment these young men move out of these Muslim societies or Muslim families, move into, say, a more free Western society or maybe move to a city. So someone could be living in a village in Turkey and they move to Istanbul um, or think of the other big cities around the Muslim world. They move into these cities or the Western world and suddenly that extended community, Muslim community that held them or gave them some self-control falls apart. They have nothing to hold their morality in place. They have no relationship with God. They have no power of the Holy Spirit. So they move into the Western world and then they become very, very immoral young men. So this young man had this experience and he'd even admitted back in his home country he didn't have the struggle. And he says, but here there's just so much temptation out there and I can't control myself. And I just turned to him and I said, brother, I said, you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can only get the power of the Holy Spirit if you recognize who the Lord Jesus Christ is. See, God has the power to give you the self-control that you need. And of course, he sort of looks at me, he says, oh, Betty, you shouldn't say that to me because um, I'm being very bold in my witness. And I said, no, I'm being very, very serious to you. You need the power of the Holy Spirit that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a wonderful opportunity to share truth. And this young man keeps having issues. And I believe God is on his case because he's sensitive to spiritual things and he knows when he does wrong. He has conviction of sin, which means I now need to try more and more so introduce him to the Savior. And he'll be one of the few Christians if he comes through and pray for him if you think about it. He'll be one of the few Christians in his nation. There are very few Christians in the particular nation that he comes from. But this is more. It means that this young man in London who's come from that very Islamic nation, he has a God that is incapable of helping him. He has a God that cannot give him the self-control that he needs. He has a God that has allowed him to be immoral and be, and be unfaithful to his wife. That's the kind of God he follows. Show the absolute purity and holiness of the one true God of the Bible. Show the power that comes from following the one true God of the Bible. Compare it to the utter weakness that Islam does for the male or makes the male into. The weak, weakness of self-control, no self-control in the male and expose what this religion does to the mind of the male and to also their lack of self-control. Just do a comparison. And as exhortation to Christian brothers and sisters who do struggle in this realm, as some do, ground yourself in the word of God. Ask the Lord to give you the power to be able to live in the way that he wants you to. Because once you do, you have a message that can change the world. You have holiness in you because of the power of the Holy Spirit to change the world. And especially the two, almost two billion Muslims that live on our planet today, many of whom are men and are struggling with these issues. Now, women do too. Don't think women are immune to this. So I had a story or know of a story of a young friend who was working among Arab women. 
And um, she'd lived in the country, but then she'd moved back to London and she was moving among the Arab Arab um, communities, very strict Muslim Arab communities, um, gender segregation, full niqab, full purdo, just see their eyes. And she was working with these women and she came back and met with us Christians. And she said, you know what? I've never heard such filthy language and talk coming out of women's mouths as I do among these Muslim, very um, conservative Muslim women. Uh, I was moving in Turkish culture for a long time. And I still do I have many dear, well, Kurdish friends from Turkey. But a particular friend of mine, this is quite a few years ago, she was moving among the Turkish culture, among the Turkish women. And she came from quite a, a conservative and fairly protected Christian background. So she hadn't really been exposed to much. But as she was working with these Turkish women, she said she was utterly appalled from the filth that was coming out of the women's minds, mouths, especially as they talked about their husbands. And, but as a Christian woman in that, in that situation, her role was not necessarily to walk out of that situation. Her role was to speak up as a Christian woman as a Christian woman who had self-control over her mind and her mouth, as a Christian woman who respected her husband enough to not speak about him in certain terms with the other women, as a Christian woman to help uh, those Muslim women to view men in a godly way, in a pure way, in a self-controlled way. And so there's all these, um, these issues happening behind the scenes under this overarching, supposedly moral uh, outward layer of morality in the Islamic world. There's all sorts of perversions in the minds of the men and women that live in, in majority Muslim cultures. Remind your Muslim friend of the verses where it says, keep the marriage bed holy. In Islam, there's no concept of that because a man, if he wants another wife, can take one. There's no concept of keeping the marriage bed holy. There is a very um, sad story um, in, in um, Zahib Bukhari, Volume 5. And it was actually this story that my supervisor, when he was reading my thesis, he was reading it and he just puts the thesis down. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. <laughs> and Abu Sayyid says this, We went out with the Allah's apostles and we received captives from among the Arabs and we desired women and celibacy became hard on us and we loved to do coitus interruptus, so um, interrupting the, the sex act. We asked Muhammad about this should we interrupt the sex act and he said it is better for you not to do so for if any soul is predestined to exist it will exist now his companions had said to Muhammad what if we make these women pregnant and and how did Muhammad respond he says if if a child is to come out of this union so be it is basically what he's saying so look at this this is the apparently the example of all time If someone had come to the Lord Jesus Christ and said such a thing, they would have been condemned. He would have pointed out their sin. He would have pointed out how he was dying for that sin. He was going to transform them. But what does Muhammad do? He he doesn't tell them to refrain and stop abusing the women. He doesn't tell them to go home or wait to be faithful to their wives. And he doesn't consider the well-being of the captives nor the children that would have come from that, maybe unwanted children. Rather, he advises them to go ahead to abuse these women and, and it doesn't matter if they are progeny. If Allah wants there to be children, so there will be children. Folks, what kind of man is this? What kind of God allows this kind of man to be the, the most perfect prophet of all time, the seal of all prophets? Do a comparison between that role model and how he talked to his men and then how Jesus taught his disciples to talk to him, how Jesus talked with his disciples. Notice how Jesus constantly 
over and over again. He has deep theological discussions with them. He continually challenges their false ideas. He continually helps them to see that the way they think is wrong, that there's a better way to think. He introduces Old Testament themes that talk about living in a way that will honor God and that will bring the gospel into play. There's a huge comparison between the kind of conversations Muhammad has with his disciples, his men, and then compare it with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the kind of conversations he has with his disciples, his men. And what's more, the women that traveled with Muhammad and his men were either wives or they were captives and they were slaves, often sex slaves. That's what happened to the women who traveled with Muhammad. They were not platonic friends. They were not living as brothers and sisters. They were, there was gender segregation. There was debates between Muhammad and his men on how they should treat the women in their homes, whether they could beat the wife, whether they could take the woman for themselves. Compare that to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always encouraging his disciples, including the women who traveled with them. There were many women who traveled with Jesus and his disciples, homes that they visited that belonged to women. And the men and women were platonically engaging with each other. That's the kind of God we follow. That's the kind of model we follow. Bring Muslims back to that kind of model.